Continuing in our, our series in the book of Acts, we've been at this for a number of weeks here, and so we're in chapter 5, verses 17 through 42 now. Um, I'm going to read the passage for us, and so if you want to join me on, with, with your Bible or, or on your app or whatever, again, that's Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. And uh, from the Word of God, we read, we read this. <clears throat> but the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to all the people the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and all those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, uh, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would come. And uh, someone came to them and said, Look, these men whom you put into prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at, the right hand, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel for the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in high honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders for the men to be put outside for a little while. Then he said to the men of Israel, take care what, what are you, <clears throat> take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thetis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. This is the word of God for us today. We must obey God rather than men, is the marquee declaration of this passage. It just, it just sounds cool, doesn't it? Right? It's bold, and it's brave. It grabs your attention. It sounds like the kind of thing somebody says like, like right before they get into some epic fight. 
It's like, we must obey God rather than men, so what are you going to do about it? It raises up this, this challenge. It's pretty easy to read this verse with an us-against-the-world mentality behind it. Here is where I draw my line, and I will shake my fist at anyone who tries to make me move it. A great many bumper stickers and t-shirts and inspirational posters pluck verse 29 out of Acts chapter 5 and market it as a rallying cry for, for all Christians to gather at this or that hill, and they ought to be ready to, to, to die for this, this or that idea. But this morning, I'd like us to consider whether or not we must obey God rather than men is better understood not as a call to action, but instead as a humble confession and open invitation. Because when we look closely, the focus of this passage is not division and not disagreement, it's obedience. Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42, it's not a case study on how to righteously pick a fight with people that think differently than you or that oppose you. It shouldn't lead us to ask ourselves, who does the obedience to God set me against? Instead, the question we need to be considering today is, what does obedience of God demand of me? What does obedience to God demand of me in every situation, in every circumstance of my life? What does it really mean to obey God and to follow Jesus with our everyday decisions, our reactions, to, and our reactions to opposition? How might our lives change if we strive for total and absolute obedience in everything we say and do? What does obedience to God demand of me? in every situation, in every circumstance of my life? With this question in our minds, we're going to look back through this passage today. So far in the book of Acts, we've seen how, how Christianity, as it would become, become to known, uh, how Christianity grew from that small gathering of followers who had known Jesus before his death, before his resurrection, and, and, it, and had grown from that, that small gathering and, and just exploded into several thousand people now who declare that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the Savior of the world. Thanks to the power of the Holy Spirit, the leaders of the church at this time, known as the apostles, they have been capable of amazing things. They are teaching with great power and authority. They are healing people of their sicknesses. They are even driving out evil spirits from people and saving their lives. By all accounts, something marvelous and incredible is taking place. Jesus, through his commission of these people, of these followers, is establishing something new. He's building his church, and nothing seems able to stop it. But the mood dramatically changes. The, the, the mood of this entire narrative shifts once the focus begins to look at not the people and not, not the apostles, but the leaders of Israel at this time. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. See, Israel's chief religious leaders and the members of his, of his theological and, and, uh, and political party, those two things were, were pretty well meshed at this time. They became jealous of the success and the popularity of these uneducated and yet inexplicably confident preachers of Jesus' message. Now, we have already seen these groups clash back in chapter 4 of, of, uh, of the book of Acts. Peter and John there had been brought before the council and had been told specifically, do not preach in this man's name anymore. Do not preach, do not teach in the name of Jesus any longer. But that hadn't worked, and Peter and John and the rest of the, rest of the growing Christian church continued along their way, and with every passing day, the Sadducees felt that their authority and control over people was being challenged. 
and was being slowly chipped away. So they rounded up a bunch of the apostles and, and they dragged them off and, and they put them in public prison, which, which that means that they, they did this whole thing kind of as a spectacle. They, they took them in public and, and everyone, they made sure that it was kind of a splashy move. Everyone got to see the apostles arrested by these officials and dragged off to a prison and thrown in and, and, and kept there. They, they wanted to grab people's attention so they could, they could say, our authority still matters. We still have power over these people, which in all honesty makes verse 19 just a little bit funny. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them back out. What the Sadducees had hoped would be this great display of power and control ends up being just a minor and temporary inconvenience to the people of God and the unstoppable message of Christ's gospel. The angel of the Lord opens the doors and leads the apostles out to their freedom right until they get outside. Because it turns out the angel was sent not just with this mission of freeing these men, but also with a message from the Lord. With the jailbreak complete, we find out that the escapees still have work to do. Because in verse 20, the angel tells them, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, now take a moment really to, to, to process, to wonder, what is the angel asking these men to do? They had just been arrested. They had just been arrested by, by their leaders for doing the exact same thing that God says they need to go do again. The, and the very understandably human thing to do right now would be to run. It'd be to hide. It'd be to go to ground, wait until all of this blows over, wait until Israel's leaders get distracted by something else and sh- shift their attention somewhere else so then they can kind of come back out or restart their ministry. And yet the angel's command from God could not be clearer. Stay. And do not flee. Go back and pick up where you left off. Go stand in the temple, in the very place that your persecutors believe they have the most power and influence, and tell everyone about this life, meaning the everlasting life of forgiveness and salvation found only through faith in Jesus Christ. So looking at their options, you can either run and flee, or you can go back to this very dangerous place Consider the question the apostles would have had to ask themselves, what does obedience to God demand of them in this moment, in this circumstance? Could they trust God enough to put themselves in clear and obvious danger? Did they believe that obedience to God and the preaching of the gospel was worth whatever might happen if they go back? Would they go stand in the temple, teach the people, heal the sick, free the captive, and share the good news of salvation, even though they knew by doing so, it might very well be the last thing they ever do on this earth. Verse 21 tells us, And when they heard this, they entered the the temple at daybreak and began to teach. The apostles were back in the temple the very first moment they could. The very first moment those doors opened again, they were right back in that temple. And back in, in the first century, Jews would gather at, at particular times of day to, to pray together. And, uh, and right at daybreak was one of those established rhythm times of prayer. And so this isn't the apostles like trying to beat the crowd and maybe doing their work and, when no one was going to be around and kind of a small amount of crowd. They went back to the temple at a moment they knew the place would be full where lots of people would be there, where lots of people would be there to hear this continued preached message. They answered the question, what does the obedience to God demand of us? By doing exactly what the angel had commanded. They went back to the place of greatest danger because they believed obedience to God was worth that cost. 
Now, my point is not that you should leave here today and, and go figure out what's the most dangerous place you can go to and, and go preach the gospel there, right? That, that's not what's being said here. What I want you to see is the depth of the apostles' commitment and how high the stakes are when we ask ourselves something like, what does obedience of God demand of us, right? What, what, what's going on here? What are the stakes when asking this question? In this situation and circumstance, it demanded that these believers sacrifice their freedom and put their lives on the line. Is it possible that the same would ever be asked of us? If we were to apply this principle of total obedience to God to things like our opportunities, our resources, our freedoms, our rights, what sacrifices for the sake of the gospel might be demanded of us? What power might we lose? What privileges might we set aside so that we can better love our neighbors, so that we can better preach the gospel? Are we ready to make those kind of sacrifices even today? We need to take this kind of obedience seriously. This is not just some simple you know, thought exercise or theological debate. Obedience to God, even costly, shocking obedience, is the norm not the outlier of every Christian life. Obedience to God, even when it's shocking and it's costly and it asks so much of us, that that is the normal pattern of a Christian life. It is not the outlier. This is what God, this is what Scripture calls us to do and be. While the apostles are, are there teaching at the temple, the high priests and the Sadducees are, are, are somewhere else. They're gathered somewhere else, and they're getting ready to put on this big show. All right, in, in chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, we find out that they've gathered not just their own faction, but in fact the full Sanhedrin, the full assembly of all of Israel's elders and leaders. And their plan is to bring the apostles, these, these arrested men, and, and the plan, plan is to bring them before the council and break them under the power of, of the authority gathered there. They might, they might be thinking that this is finally their opportunity to, to end this challenge, to stop this Jesus movement before it becomes any bigger and continues to challenge who they are. So imagine, imagine for a moment their shock, uh, their embarrassment, confusion, anger, and maybe even their fear when the officers of the jail return empty-handed, only able to report that they actually have no idea where these men have gone to. The doors were locked, the guards were standing by, but the apostles are nowhere to be found. And then, while everyone is standing around and literally says, wondering what what this might lead to, they're just kind of standing around, holding empty hands, saying, what are we going to do? Some random guy shows up and says, "Uh, hey, those guys you're looking for, that you very publicly arrested last night? Yeah, they're back. They're in the temple, and they're still, still, all that stuff you don't want them to talk about, they're definitely still talking about it. I have to imagine that there was a bit of confused scrambling at this point. But eventually, the council sends some guards to recapture these these mysteriously freed troublemakers. And in verse 26, it says, The captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And I think there's an opportunity here for us to reflect more on this question. Because the apostles at this point, they're, they're getting pretty popular. And, and with popularity comes, comes some power, comes some clout. 
So much so that instead of being arrested this time, they get the whole like, hey, we, we need you to please come with us kind of treatment from, from the officers here. Because the tension at the temple right now, it's so tangible, it's, it's, so, it's so heavy that these officers of Israel's highest court think twice about using force here to get their way. Now, we're not told anything about what the apostles' reaction was to being brought in once again, but it's interesting to notice that instead of inciting the crowds, instead of stirring up a possibly deadly deadly conflict and rebellion, they go peaceably. They left the safety of their supporters and instead end up surrounded by their persecutors. Why would they do this? Why would they look at this and decide this is what obedience demanded of them? Maybe they remember that Christ's way of handling one's enemies is with humility, not hostility. That Jesus' teaching was not to throw the first punch, but to always be ready to turn the other cheek. Maybe they remembered that their mission was not to start a fight, but instead to be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and throughout Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When we feel pressured and cornered, when we're confronted by our enemies, but, but we know that with the right words, we might be able to, to set off a mob that's fueled with this self-righteous indignation that would take our side and keep us safe from the fight, or at least give us more voice and more strength, more, more power behind our words. Maybe we need to take a page out of the Apostles' book and really consider what obedience to God would demand that we do. Because we are not rioters. We are not people who are ruled by our anger or our rage. We are peacemakers. We are the meek and the humble and the gentle and lowly of heart. Now, that doesn't mean that we just roll over and accept every injustice that comes our way. But it does mean that if we are seeking to right the wrongs around us and proclaim truth, the way we go about that had better not look anything like the way the world does it. It cannot be fueled by hatred. It cannot be fueled by by the desire for power or strength or force or to inflict fear upon others. Obedience to God demands something better. And as we will see, it demands a dependence on a wholly different sort of power and strength. So the apostles are, are then led away and presented once again to Israel's leaders. In verse 27, it says, when they were brought in, when they had them brought in, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you are, and you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, the high priest here accuses the apostles of two things. The first is that they had disobeyed the council's previous orders to stop teaching in Jesus' name. Back in chapter 4, that's where we saw that. And then they said that the apostles were also blaming Jesus' death on them. They said that they were guilty of this man's blood. Someone indicating that they were saying that Jesus, who was innocent, that they're guilty of spilling this man's innocent blood. It's interesting to note that these questions, which are really more accusations, uh, do not seem presented as a means of getting to the truth. All right, the Sanhedrin hasn't dragged these men in here to kind of consider the facts and the evidence. They're more concerned with the defense of their own reputation and authority. That's, that's what they're chiefly concerned with here. The exact opposite is true of the apostles. They are not concerned at all with their reputation or their authority. They really don't believe that they need to care too much about their position or their power or their, what, what they have at that moment. What they do care deeply about, though, is the truth. 
And so in defense of their faith and in obedience to God's command to go back and keep preaching, no matter what, they step forward together. And it says that Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel for the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter's first answer to the accusation is, is pretty straightforward. Why did they disobey the Sanhedrin's orders to stop preaching and teaching about Jesus? Because we must obey God rather than men. In this instance, obedience to God demanded that they disobey an order, which for them was essentially a law from their governing body. For Peter and the apostles, and so too for for us, the will of God must be followed no matter what the, the rule or the law or the command of men might be. Now, it's worth noting that this is not something that Peter would have done lightly. Peter was not anti-establishment. He will later make this pretty clear in, in, in some comments that we have preserved as the letter of 1 Peter, where he, the, the same man who's saying the statement here, Peter wrote, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So Peter understood that normally, all things being equal, earthly governments, they, they, it's generally a good thing to do what they ask you to do. They, ha- they serve a good purpose. And ultimately, they are established by and answerable to God. Yet there will be times when they fail in this task. And so, and as we respond, there will be times where we have to refuse to participate in injustice and accept that there will be consequences to our disobedience. That's why when we ask the question, what, what does obedience to God demand of us? We add that piece in this circumstance and in this situation. We have to hans- handle these, these problems and these situations. And we have to handle all of these sort of things with care and, 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 and wisdom and sober judgment. You can't just do one blanket response to everything. You have to think through each situation, each circumstance, and bring the wisdom of God to these things as they happen. Now, the world may not understand what you do or, or, or why you do it. People may, may even become angry because of your allegiance to doing things God's way. What the apostles model and what the Bible teaches and what God expects of us is this. Even if you're misunderstood, you still obey God's way. Right? Even if you're misunderstood, you, you still are called to obey the way that God wants you to live your life. However... Notice what the apostles do with this opportunity that their commitment to obedience creates. Right? They don't pat themselves on the back, and they don't declare themselves better than Israel's leaders and sing the praises of their moral superiority. They don't even make demands for special treatment or ask for their release. In the midst of all this tension and conflict and danger, Peter and the apostles seize the moment and preach the gospel to people who need to hear it. Acts chapter 5, verses 30 through 32, is a wonderfully rich, concise, and brilliant confession of the Christian faith. God raised Jesus, put him in the place of all glory and power, in order for us to receive gifts of repentance and forgiveness for our sins, which is confirmed by the Holy Spirit and the testimony of those who choose to believe and obey. Amen, Peter. Amen. But what I want to be sure that we catch here is this. Peter and the apostles share the gospel in hopes of bringing salvation to people who, by every earthly measure, are their enemies. 
All right? They aren't having a friendly theological discussion with some guys they bumped into at a coffee shop. They are testifying to men who are jealous, confused, angry, and just looking for an opportunity to lash out. But for Peter and, and those who are with him, for Peter and the apostles, obedience to God demands that they speak to all the people all the words of this life, that they share the gospel, including with those that are their captors and their oppressors and their persecutors. What does obedience to God demand of me in this situation, in this circumstance, is not a question that we can ask idly. It will challenge you in ways that you cannot even imagine. It may very well lead you to places that you don't really want to go or really want to be. But ultimately, what Scripture tells us, what these stories were preserved for, is to tell us that it's worth it. Because knowing the gospel is truly worth any cost. Knowing God and following Christ and being filled by the Spirit and then having that God-given purpose in your life to share this gospel with others, to, to spread this good news with everyone you meet, it is greater than anything else you can imagine. It takes preeminence in your life over anything else you might wish to do. Obedience to God demands that we be all in. And I hope and pray that's how you'll treat your faith. Be all in at all times and in every moment. The Sanhedrin's response to the apostles' testimony is, is outrage. They are ready to kill them on the spot. The, 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 it is only by the intervention of a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a highly respected teacher at the time and, and a member of the council, that ends up saving the apostles' lives. And he basically ends up giving them an answer, kind of a, a historical review. He says, we've seen this kind of happen a few times. We just let it run its course. It dies out on its own because if it's of men, it'll fail. But then he says, if, it, if it's of God, we're not going to be able to stop it anyway. And in fact, maybe we need to be careful about how, how, we, how we choose to act here. So he says, the best idea here is, is just to let, this, let these men go. And that seems to calm everybody down, but only to an extent, to a point. They don't just let them go. They bring them back in, and, uh, and they actually beat them. They tell them not to teach uh, in the name of Jesus anymore, and they beat them. Uh, some, some versions say that they flogged them. And just to be clear, uh, flogging is very bad. Uh, it's, it, it's enormously painful. It, it involved being whipped or, or beaten twice on, on, the, on the back and once on the front, and people often died of, of shock and blood loss after being flogged. But So the, the apostles go through this, and they release, were released, and bloodied and broken, they returned to their homes. But the passage ends with this incredible testimony. In verse 41, it says, They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were considered worthy of to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So what does obedience to God demand of us? That we keep going. That we draw strength from what we know to be true and find joy even in the most heinous suffering for the sake of the gospel. That nothing stops us from continuing on every day, never ceasing to teach and preach that Jesus truly is the Savior of the world. So it has become my practice, in some part because of this passage, but also in some other studies and things that God has been leading me through lately, to basically ask the question, what does obedience of God demand of me in this situation, in this circumstance, in every area of my life as I, as I grapple with difficult decisions or as I, as I work on resisting things like temptation or, or, or think about how I must repent from sin? What does obedience to God demand of me as a husband and a father? How might the way I love my wife or lead my family change if I considered my actions in light of what God expects of me? What does obedience of God demand of me when I am tired, 
when I'm spent, when I, when I am done talking to people for the day. And as an introvert, that happens just about every day. And yet when I get home and I know my neighbor is working in the backyard and I know it would mean a lot to him to have somebody come out and ask him how his day is. Or when I'm, when I'm home and I'm sitting and I'm, and I'm ready to turn on Netflix and watch whatever, whatever I, I want to or catch up on whatever show I'm looking for. And then I remember, I have a friend who really needs someone to reach out and just ask them how they're doing. What does obedience to God demand of me in those moments where I could be someone's encouragement and, and carry the truth to them? What does obedience of God demand of me when I want to be selfish, when I crave giving into desire, or when I am so angry that I cannot see the humanity and the image-bearing reality of the person that I am so, so sure is wrong? These are all hard questions, born of hard circumstances. Obedience is rarely easy. But taking the time to work out this discipline and ask myself, what, is, what, what does it mean for me to obey God right now? It is a necessary part of the Christian life. We've got to do this work. We've got to seek obedience. And so this week, I'd ask you to, ask you to join, join me in asking yourself, what does obedience to God demand of me in this situation, in this circumstance that I am facing? What does obedience of God demand of your time, your resources, your gifts, and your finances? What does obedience of God demand of you as you think about how you treat others, about your willingness to forgive, or your own willingness to confess your own wrongdoing? What does obedience of God demand of us in relation to our sin, in relation to our darkest habits, or our most shameful and anguished addictions? Don't be surprised if the answer is not immediately clear. Take the time to think about it. Take the time to pray about it. Take the time to do the work to get this right. May the Lord bless you with wisdom and clarity and confidence as you seek to answer the question, what does obedience of God demand of, me to, demand of me today? What does it mean to truly follow after God in this moment, in this situation, in this circumstance, as we have seen the apostles do in this story? Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, <clears throat> obedience is, is no small thing. It is a difficult call. It is a difficult thing to, to submit ourselves to, to rules and ideas and, and ways of life that are higher than what we would establish for our own. But you, God, you are good, you are perfect, and your ways are perfect and true. And so we ask that just as you empowered the apostles to be so bold and so brave and so loving towards those that were ready to hurt them, Lord, that you would teach us obedience in those same situations. You would teach us to spread obedience to you throughout every aspect and area of our life. God, use this time to, to, to embed that desire in our hearts, to teach us where we need to let go and teach us what we need to take up. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. If you are able, I